So today we are continuing on in our teaching series that um, we're in the midst of right now, going through the book of Luke. And the reason we're in this teaching series, we're spending out six months, again, going through the gospel of Luke, and it's hopefully to invite us to uh, lean more fully into our vision statement here at Covenant, what we believe God's called us to do. Our vision is that we're encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. And probably for many of us, if we thought about what does it mean to follow Jesus, uh, we have certain ideas, right? We have certain stories in the Bible. Maybe we have certain quotes that we like that Jesus said, certain verses that we like that we like put up on our uh, phones or, or somewhere else to kind of remind us of stuff. But the thing about those is while they're all good, those verses and those stories, whatever we're drawn to, usually reinforce what we already think Jesus should do. We like the Jesus who agrees with us, right? And following Jesus sometimes does agree with us, but sometimes it challenges us, and sometimes it confuses us, and sometimes we've got to dive more deeply into what it means to fully follow Jesus. So what is one of the benefits of like going through and spending six months going through a book of the Bible is that hopefully we get exposed to certain things that can expand our understanding of what following Jesus looks like. Make it bigger, make our spiritual lives more robust, make our, our, our lives uh, more robust than they would be if we just kind of kept our nerve a little, this is my Jesus and I love him so much, okay? So that's why we're doing this. So we started uh, with Luke chapter 1 at the beginning of Advent, if you remember, and kind of read the prophecies about Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's birth. Uh, we did that during uh, Advent. When we got to Christmas Eve, we moved into Luke chapter 2 and talked about the birth of Jesus. We're now in the midst of looking at his life and his ministry uh, when it gets to the middle of April, we're going to move into Holy Week and we'll arrive in Luke at the, the, the um, events of Holy Week and the cross and resurrection on Easter. Then we're going to follow Luke after the resurrection where he goes through the road to Emmaus and we're going to end in early May. But hopefully this gives us a, a bigger picture of what following Jesus really can look like and really shape our lives, okay? So the passage we're in today is from Luke chapter 9. Uh, it's just a few short verses. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and this is what he says following him looks like. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever, whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for the least among all of you is the greatest. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, what our opinions are, what our spirituality looks like, what our faith looks like, what our doubts look like, what our questions look like, what our fears look like, that we would encounter you, the living God, the person of Jesus, through the power of your Spirit this morning, and you would change us all, that we wouldn't leave this, this property today the way we walked in, that we'd be more fully alive than we ever imagined possible. And we pray for this and nothing less because it's in your spirit that we depend and pray and trust. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So this is one of those teachings, these three little verses, that you do not need like a PhD in theology to really understand what Jesus is saying here and figure out. You don't need to have been seminary trained and go back to like the Greek, the original language, and be like, well, you might think it means this, but if you have a really important degree like mine and you've translated the Greek, then it actually means this, and that all of the rest of you without this secret knowledge don't actually understand what Jesus is saying. This is really straightforward. Jesus is saying, don't be egotistical. Don't make life about you. Don't think that life is just about you and your dreams and what you're going to get and your discipline and your getting ahead and your accomplishments and your resume. 
Don't think that that's what life's about. He's like, just don't be that person. Don't be selfish. Don't be that self-centered individual. Be humble. Be selfless. Be kind. Serve those around you. Seek out the well-being of those around you. That's what true greatness is. It's an amazing teaching in theory. It's just the living it part that's really hard, right? Like what he's saying here is one of those things that we sit there and go, oh, that sounds really spiritual. Yes, a little child, the least of these. Well, it's like, but, but we don't actually live this way. This is not how we think when we're really young. What we like is what we like. This is just natural to human beings. And this is not what our culture celebrates at all. To truly understand and follow what Jesus is teaching here is so countercultural to how we function as a society and what we value. Because we value accomplishment, we value grit, we value determination, we value people who get ahead. We love those stories and want our kids to become those people. Now we're going to just do a little exercise here just to illustrate how deeply ingrained not living this way is in all of our lives, okay? And this is an experiment, I couldn't think of another way to do this, where I'm gonna ask you some questions and I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand if you're answering yes to any of these questions. Now, if some of you are like, oh, I don't do this kind of stuff. Like, I know, if I were you, I actually don't like the raising of the hand exercise either. We know how cool you are, we do. We all know how cool you are, but I couldn't think of a better way to illustrate this real fast, so just do it, okay? Just. Just get over it and just do it real fast, all right? So it's just a couple of questions. Number one, I would like all of you to raise your hand if you have a sports team. I don't care which sports team it is, but just a sports team that you are passionate about. Raise your hand. Okay, that's a pretty good number of people your sports team are passionate about. Now, I want you to raise your hand again if you love it more when your sports team loses. <laughs> right, that's my point. We like winning. We like success. We like greatness. We like being around it, right? If you are, for example, as I assume one or two of you are here, a UT fan, when the football season happened this year and the Red River rivalry happened and there was that kick at the last minute where uh, the, you know, the kicker hit a field goal and they beat Oklahoma in the last seconds, people celebrated, UT fans celebrated. There was no one as a follower of Jesus in that stadium that was like, oh no, oh he made the kick. Oh, we wanted to serve the Oklahoma fans that are here. We didn't want this victory because we didn't want them to live with the anguish of having their hearts ripped out at the last minute in this way. We would, think about that drive back to Norman. Think about what that's gonna be like and just questioning your existence and what's real. We would never want them. Give that to us so that we can serve them. We don't want to win or be great. We want others to. Said nobody <laughs> who was a UT fan when that kick went through. Or question number two. Raise your hand if you like seeing live music or shows. I don't care. About, yeah, we're in Austin, okay? You have to raise your hand. Lie. Raise your hand if you, you know, if, if you like live music, right? That's what we do, right? Now imagine that you had a concert that was coming here to Austin or a show that was coming here to Austin that you really wanted to see, but you knew it was in a small venue, and so it was going to sell out really, really fast. Think Hamilton that's coming up or something, right? So, which is not a small venue, but it's going to sell out really, really fast. And so you know that tickets, for instance, go on sale 
at like 10 o'clock one day. And so to get the tickets so that you can either go yourself or you're going to give them to your kids, it's going to be the greatest Christmas present they ever got. And so you're there, 9.55, you're at your computer screen, you've got the link up, you know it's going to sell out really quick, your hand is on the mouse, you've got your uh, credit card information loaded in, and at 10 o'clock when the thing opens up, you just start clicking the link as fast as you can to try to get in. And if you've ever done that, like I have, and then you get in a line, right? And it's like the tickets are going and you're in some magical line, and then you wonder, like, who gets to form this line? Who decided where I was, like, 10 o'clock, and, and how could there be 6,000 people in front of me that click faster than me, but somehow they do? I want you to imagine that the tickets get sold out right before you get to buy them. Who here loves that feeling? Nobody. That's my point. Because a Christian who's really serious about Luke chapter 9 might be sitting there and in the back of their head just going, oh, thank goodness we didn't take someone else's tickets. Thank goodness that some other family got to go instead of us so that we could serve them in that way and they wouldn't have to live with the heartache we feel right now at not going to this event that our kids were dying to go to because they got to go instead. And kids, guess what? Everyone celebrates because someone else gets to go and we serve them. We don't think this way. It, nothing reinforces this at all that Jesus is saying. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands to this one, but have any of you ever been in a conflict before? An argument, a disagreement. The reason I'm not asking you to raise your hands is you might, and the person next to you may not be happy that you raised your hand, okay? <laughs> this happens. No two people companies or governments ever got into a fight or an argument because the two of them were genuinely seeking to outserve the other. Conflict happens because we want what we want and they want what they want and we're trying to figure out who gets their way or how we negotiate this and figure it out. And that's where resentment can come from and everything else. Guys, this stuff is woven deep into our DNA and it is reinforced by every cultural message. So the moment we sit there and hear Jesus say this, I'm like, mm, yes, let's be like a child and serve. There is nobody that can hear this today and just go, I'm going to do that now, right? Honey, for 44 years, I've been really selfish and about my dreams and career, but I heard a sermon today and I'm not going to do that ever again because now I know what life's about because I heard what Jesus said. It doesn't work that way. That's like a New Year's resolution. You will mean that really hard for an hour and then default back to how we live. Now, why does Jesus give us this teaching? Why does he say that this is what following? If it's so hard and it's so countercultural and it's so different, why does Jesus do this? Is it just some like spiritual hurdle that Jesus is going, let's see if they can clear it, right? Let's, like, let's make their life really hard and see if they can clear this just to see. Or does Jesus teach us things for different reasons? Does Jesus say that this is what life's about and I want to liberate you from the way that you've been thinking that life and contentment and joy and happiness and success are about? Why does Jesus do anything that he does to liberate us and to show us what life can truly look like? And he's saying greatness is not in the accomplishment of everything that you think you want your life to be about. Greatness is seen as someone who loves and serves those around them. Turns out that study of science actually says that Jesus may know what he's talking about. Sociologists and scientific studies of our culture have shown us over and over and over again that you can have everything you want in life and still be absolutely miserable. 
you can have the great job and the great career and the degree from the right school and the right grad school diploma that's on your wall and the wonderful spouse and the 2.6 kids and golden retrievers and the right minivan or station wagon and the white picket fence and be debt free and be a success and have people who want to ment be mentored by you because you represent what they want. You can have it all. Everything that you think you want your life to be about and be absolutely miserable. Now, it's not say, I'm not saying that having those things makes you miserable. You can have all of that and have great joy and peace and contentment and gratitude in your heart. But you also can have it all and have none of that. And the amazing part that we live behind is the lie in our culture and in our society that if, when we don't feel content, there's this thing of like, if I just had a little more or accomplished a little more or got a little more or this worked out for me different, then I'd be okay. It's like as a parent when you're driving your kids, like how much longer? You're like, it's just around the next bend, right? And we keep going, okay, then I'm just gonna get this degree or I'm just gonna have this career or I'm just gonna pay for this thing or I'm just gonna have my kids go to this school or I'm just gonna have them make the honor roll or get into this college, blah, 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 blah. And someday I'm gonna sit there and go, I got it. But we keep buying into it over and over and over again. Jesus says there's a better way. There's a different way of living your life and of pursuing some greatness in a totally different form than thinking it's all about you. Some research that just came out from Yale University recently that was really fascinating. It was a, a, a study done by some researchers on looking at happiness and contentment in people. And it was looking at what makes us truly happy and content over time. Not just in a moment where like something cool happens, but who are people that are happy and content over time. And they found some really interesting stuff. The first thing they found, for example, was that happiness cannot happen in isolation. People who are lonely or isolated and lack community who really knows you and walks with you do not have sustained amounts of happiness and contentment over time. Loneliness is maybe the biggest inhibitor they found in their research to sustained happiness in life. And what's interesting is we're in a culture that year after year studies are showing we're getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier and more isolated and surrounded by people but no one really knows us. It's the biggest inhibitor to happiness. Nope, but if I just put my nose to the grindstone and get the right promotion, then I'm gonna be okay. The second thing they found that lay beneath that that was really interesting to me was that those people who were in community, who had sustained happiness and contentment over time, they also realized that their happiness was directly tied to the happiness of the people they're connected with in community. That it's impossible for you to be happy when the people around you are unhappy. You cannot be happy in a vacuum. You have to be connected to people and their happiness impacts your happiness. Everybody, when you think about this, knows this. A parent knows this. You can have the greatest day in the world in a job you love. If you come home and your kids are really struggling, that goes out the window. If your best friend is going through a life and death situation, that dominates how we feel about our lives. That's what connection means. That's what intimacy means. That's what friendship means. And so what the studies were saying is that if you truly want to be happy, don't be somebody that just insists on getting your own way all the time of what you want. But if you actually serve the happiness of people around you, not only do they get happier, but you actually get happier as well. And that the more and more you sit there and go, no, this is my life and what I'm doing, it actually drags everyone, including yourself, down. What the researchers were finding is that it turns out Jesus knew what he was talking about 2,000 years ago. 
that greatness is not defined by look what my life is and I will drive it forward. That greatness is defined by people who live out and serve the interests of those around them. So how do we do that? How do we do that if it's got to be more than just a New Year's resolution of like, yep, got some research from Yale and a sermon that I got a podcast on and I'm going to go live a different way. If that doesn't lead to change, then how do we actually do this when everything in our culture and everything about who we are naturally lives the opposite of that? Well, how do we change as people? Is change possible? People can change. You can change. Transformation can happen. And the way that we change and the way we talk about here at Covenant is that we need to be connected to the Lord, that it's the spirit that changes us. It's, the, it's God's presence that transforms us through his love. And so we talk about that there got to be patterns and behaviors in all of our lives, no matter who we are. Patterns of solitude, patterns of community, we say, and patterns of service. That the way we think about our days or our schedules ought to be driven by these disciplines of how am I in isolation, uh, solitude with God, how am I living in community as God intends it, and how am I serving this world God loves? That these are ways that they're disciplines that as we practice them, we get more and more connected with God, and God changes and transforms us. And each of those has got to be a part of you and I changing. So for example, this idea of what is greatness and how do we pursue this, solitude needs to be a part of that. Your prayer life, if we're really thinking about that this week, ought to have elements of confession. You ought to be sitting there at times in your prayer life, not just going, God, I want this, and I need this, and my neighbors need this, and my kids need this, but there ought to be parts of our confessional lives that we lay out before God going, Lord, I am a really selfish person, and this is not who I want to be. I make life about me all the time. It is so natural to me, it's like breathing oxygen. But I would like to pursue a different way of living. I lay this before you. Change me, transform me in prayer. We need to, in solitude, look at the teachings of Jesus. We need to read the scriptures. We need to see how his life was different from that and let the example of Jesus wash over us as we go to see what a life truly living and alive can look like. Think about the example of service as well. Obviously, service is where we live this out. How do we serve the needs of our neighbors, serve the needs of our families, serve the needs of our spouses, solitude and service. But I want to end today by the second one. I want to end today by thinking about community and how community for every single person here can be a part of how we change and how we become people that pursue real greatness. People are an integral part of doing this. People are an integral part of us becoming anything in life, right? Like, think about this. Think about uh, to become a doctor. One of the things you have to do to become a medical doctor is you can't just read a book about it and watch ER and think that you're ready to be a doctor, right? Like, just having the book knowledge does not make you a doctor. And so one of the things that you do as a doctor is you have to go into a residency program, and that means you have to kind of uh, be with other doctors. You have to apprentice under them. You have to learn how things happen. You have to learn how to walk into a room. You have to learn how you interact with a patient. You have to learn how these things work. And that it's beyond the book knowledge as you sit in that place that we are changed and transformed of what becoming a doctor looks like. That that, that that culture washes and becomes a part of us. People change us. Settings change us. It's the same to become most vocations. It's the same to become a school teacher. You don't just read a book of how to be a school teacher. You got to go intern in a place. I, I see this as a pastor a lot. To be a pastor, when you're going through seminary, you're supposed to be an intern in a church. And it's vitally important because I have had numerous people that I've known that went to seminary. God has called me to do this. And you're like, okay, well, what are you called to do? I'm called to be a pastor in a church and to preach. Okay, have you done it before? Nope, but I took a class on it in seminary and I'm going to be really good at it. 
and I'm going to like it, which is fine. But then there's this other part of going, well, you might need to go intern in a place for a while and, you know, actually see if you like it, see what you need to learn, and see if you're any good at it. Because thinking you're going to be a good preacher doesn't make you one. You learn through these experiences. And so it's the same way of how do we become people that pursue genuine greatness. And so I ask you to think about this. Who are people that embody this value in your life? Who are people who have servants' hearts that you know? I'm not saying they're perfect, but who are people who have a gift of contentment and love that seek to serve other people more than making life about themselves? Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's someone you knew several years ago. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a youth leader for your children. Who are people that embody these values and how do we seek to position our lives around them? Most of the time, the people we pursue, if we pursue anyone, are people that get us where we want to go in life. What would it mean to pursue and be around and live in the presence of those who embody this? These are not the people that are, that are in the headlines. They're not the ones in People magazine. They're not the ones that most people are pursuing. But they are catalysts of love and service in this world. They, that joy and happiness springs up around them. And what would it mean to be to just sort of percolate, to sort of marinate in their presence and say, could I just spend time with you and be with you and let that wash over me? And what would it mean to acknowledge them, to celebrate them, to give thanks for them, and to respond and say that in a world that celebrates that life is all about you and your accomplishments, what would it mean to celebrate what Jesus says greatness is and say this is the value we lift up? One way of doing that embodied recently by a video that I've seen, probably several of you have seen. It's of a video we're going to show in just a second of a young man named Brady Singer. Brady Singer was a pitcher. He's from the state of Florida. He was a very good pitcher in high school. He got a scholarship to go play at the University of Florida. He was a pitcher there. And about nine months ago, Brady Singer became a draft pick in the Major League Draft. He was drafted by the Kansas City Royals in the first round and signed a contract. Played his first kind of the end of minor league season, and then they went into the offseason. And about two months ago was his first Christmas as a professional baseball player. And he showed up at his parents' house to celebrate Christmas, as they've always done. And his Christmas present to his parents just came in an envelope. It was a letter that he had written to them that they filmed his parents' reading. And we're going to show this video now as an example of maybe some of what we're talking about. Travel around Florida for baseball. 
trying to cheat me eat and save money, but I never could because you both always wanted me to have the best stuff to help me pursue my dream. The money you both spent on traveling, gear, hotel, food, and all those Gatorades I drank is much more than I could ever give you, but there's something I want to give to you. not asking you to pay off someone's mortgage. <laughs> but that's not where these folks started to get emotional. It was when their son, who was being told by every message in society that you are a big deal, you are somebody, you have made it, your dreams have come true, how joyful, how much life has given to you, that his first act was to stop and to remember those who were not in the headlines who had served to make that possible and to celebrate it, and to respond to it. And that all of us can do, and all of us should do, as people who say that this is what greatness looks like. And so that is your challenge and your invitation this week. So when you sat down today, probably some of you thought that somebody was saving lots of chairs for somebody else. <laughs> these cards were there. You are to take these home with you. Please do not leave them here. You are to take these home with you, and we've given you an envelope and everything, and to remember and reflect on those who embody in some kind of way what greatness really looks like as people of faith as we define it, and I'd like you to celebrate it and let them know, to thank them, to acknowledge them, and maybe, just maybe, just maybe, that if hearing the rules and knowing it and doing it isn't going to really change us, that maybe that marinating it and celebrating it in this value of those who embody it, it just might rub off on us a little bit ourselves. And that you and I can truly step towards what greatness looks like. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day, that we would be people who recognize how countercultural this whole call is of following Jesus, and that we would celebrate what the kingdom can look like. That we would seek out greatness in this world. Greatness is defined by you, and that we would honor it and give thanks for it and seek to embody it. May we believe that this message is true that you give to us. And may it change us and through us change our world to look a little bit more like the world you dreamed it would be. We pray for this and trust in this in Christ's name. Amen.